Hello, and welcome to another episode of Quilt Buzz, the podcast featuring your favorite folks from across the quiltverse. I'm Amanda of Broadcloth Studio, and I'm joined by Wendy, the weekend quilter. Hey. And our special guest, Maritza of Soto Zone. Hi. So before we jump into all our quilty fun today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Maritza? Well, I am originally from Jackson Heights, Queens in New York. I've been living in Cambridge, Massachusetts for the last 15 years, 11 of which I spent teaching quilting and uh, sewing at a local fabric shop called Gather Here. I grew up around art. My father's an artist. Um, So I've been making and appreciating art as well as crafting since I was a little kid. So you mentioned that you grew up around art and you're also originally trained as an illustrator. Can you tell us how that morphed into you becoming a quilter? So like, let's, let's start at the beginning. Like when I was little, I would go through my dad's art books and his aunts who, you know, like my, my father um, was raised by his aunts because his mother passed away when he was really little. And so they were all seamstresses. So they all had these like crafting books and, you know, they would all like create patterns. Like they would draft patterns like off the top of their heads. And so I would go through all their craft books and like, you know, their sewing boxes and their scraps of fabrics and things and, you know, go through, pour through my dad's art books. Like, oh my God, I, I used to like love it. He had several books on Picasso and different modern artists. And I would just like spend my afternoons just absorbed in these books. And um, yeah, like eventually I came to, um, I came to think of a sewing machine as another tool for producing art because I would see my, my dad's aunts like make these beautiful clothes and the, the way they, they would do this, there was definitely an artistry there. So I kind of recognized that connection. And I remember wanting to make a quilt when I was like maybe like 10. And so I bought like all these little um, like felt, I say felt, but it's actually like, I don't know, some sort of like horribly flammable polyester thing. These little like felt rectangles at Woolworths for like 10 cents a piece or something and um, cut them up into squares and hand sewed them. And it was just the wonkiest, most imperfect thing you've ever seen. Like, it wouldn't even lie flat. Um, And again, that was when I was, like, 10 or so. I don't know, like, around, like, 2005, I was really tired of doing freelance. I mean, not that it was, not that I was getting that much of it. It wasn't like I had jobs pouring in. And I had, like, some, like, really horribly unfulfilling office job. And I was experiencing a creative dry spell, as one does when one is completely, like, not stimulated, not inspired, not, like, you know, just in the doldrums, right? So um, I remember going into a bookstore with some friends and just wandering around. I think this was the Union Square, the Barnes & Noble over on Union Square, which is, like, several stories and just massive and you can just get lost in there so I was wandering around and I came across the first Denise Schmidt book and I just fell so hard for it because it reminded me 
so much of you know these these quilts that I'd seen in my great aunt's books, but also like with this twist on it, you know, where it reminded me a little of modern art. Like I remember, what is it? Punch drunk or drunk love in a cabin or punch drunk love in a cabin. I can't remember exactly the name of the quilt, but I remember seeing that and just being riveted by it. And then learning about the G's Ben quilters through Denise and going down that rabbit hole and yeah, I mean, that's how I just fell in love with quilting and started quilting avidly. So so how does your training as an illustrator influence your quilting? Oh, as far as the training goes, um, I think that it, it changes the way that I look at quilts a little bit, just a little bit in that um, whenever I look at a quilt that I'm making, I'm always thinking of like the overall composition and whether the use of shade and tonality creates movement and balance within the piece. So like all these things that I learned in like painting class uh, about like how to use space, like those things suddenly matter a lot when I'm making a quilt. So you, so when, after you found that Denise Schmidt book and got, were introduced to the G's Bend quilters, so you just dove right into quilting from that point. Yes. I remember um, around the same time, Pearl Soho had launched the Pearl Bee. So suddenly I had access to all these different tutorials, you know, like they, they had just started with like, I think a half square triangle tutorial. And so I followed everything really faithfully. And um, yeah, it was at the time, because this was like, you know, 2005, 2006. So this is what like blogs were, were a thing. And there was all this information out there. So it was really easy to come across like tips and tricks and tutorials and things like that. And um you know, suddenly it was like all these books that my great aunts had, my uncle had kept a lot of them. So, you know, I just went over to visit him and I'm like, hey, by the way, and he's like, take them, take them. So I ended up with like all these like old quilting books from the 70s. And so it was really um, easy to get the information. And I think like I went out and bought, um, my mom gave me birthday money. And I think it was just like a hundred dollars. And that's like how much I had to spend on a sewing machine. So I went to Sears and I got, uh, uh, what is it? Like a, a mechanical Kenmore for $75. And it was a workhorse. Like I used that machine so much. I think I made, when I started making softies, I think I made like around 700, between six and 700 softies on that. And wow. before I eventually upgraded to a different machine, <laughs> but of course. Yeah. yeah. And you know, like it, it still worked beautifully. Like I took really good care of it. I was always like oiling it and cleaning it. And it, it just, it was a wonderful little machine, like just a, a plain old mechanical, you know, it used to like sometimes move when I was trying to quilt, it would try to get away from me, but it was just a little workhorse. And does it still work to this day? I hope so. I don't know, because eventually um, I sold it when I upgraded my machines because I, you know, like needed the space and I sold it to some guy who was getting it for his daughter uh, to learn how to sew. 
and I think I sold it for twenty five dollars. It was just like, like I want someone to just buy it, use it, and love it like I did. And then, so um, you know, as we're scrolling through your Instagram feed, uh, we noticed that you know you do do quite a bit of improv work. So how did that um, you know that first few quilts you know with half square triangles evolve into more improv work? I think um, I think it was coming across the work of Sherry Linwood that eventually led me to experiment with improv. Like, I understood how to make a quilt. I understood how piecing worked. And I understood, like, exactly what I had to do to get my quilt to lie flat, unlike that first quilt that was, like, topographical. (laughs) Um, So I had a grasp on how to construct something. And I think using those rules, it was easy to just kind of take off and play around and create improv work. And what do you think brings you back to improv again and again? I think I, the thing that most appeals to me about improv is that it's like a puzzle. It's like you're working a puzzle, you know? So it's challenging in a different way than a regular quilt is challenging. Like if I am working from someone else's pattern, like it's fun and it's, you get really, you become immersed in the really Zen process of just following the instructions, right? Like you trust the process, you get absorbed by it and you're just doing what you need to do, but you're not exactly like being challenged by it in a way, which is not to say that, using a pattern is not challenging, but just for me, at least using a pattern is, doesn't require, like, I don't know, it just doesn't light up those centers in my brain, you know, whereas working improv, it's more of an intuitive process and it really, it's, it's more immersive for me. And I just, I love figuring it out, you know, just dancing with the fabric and seeing what goes where and just really making those decisions as you're working. And, you know, I mean, sometimes I don't even like, like people think improv is just, you start in a corner and work your way out. And sometimes it is like that, but there are times when I actually will like sketch something out and like, okay, like something that's like this, you know, something that like has this kind of movement in it, but it's only like, it's only a thumbnail. It's only a sketch. It's not like I am going to firmly commit to it. I just like start working and, you know, it's like flexible design. And do you ever find that yourself that uh, you might get creative blocks as you're improving? And, you know, if you do, like, how do you overcome those? So, Yes, I encounter creative blocks all the time when improvising. And it's kind of one of the trickiest things about improv because you'll be working on a piece, you're totally in the zone, you've got like your flow going, and then suddenly you hit the wall. You reach a point where you're not quite sure where you're going to go or what the next step is or where to take the design or you have like 
different parts, different elements of the design that you're working simultaneously. And then you reach a point where you're like, huh, okay, now I have to mesh these. Like now these two have to come together. How do I make this happen? So like be it resolving the design or resolving a construction issue, like how to execute an idea that you think would be cool. Um, yeah, you, you kind of reach these points where you get stuck. So I have like different methods to overcome this. Like sometimes I'll just put the piece in a timeout, which is actually not the best method because then what ends up happening is I end up working on something else. And then I come back to that piece months later and I'm like, oh yeah, that, I don't know what I was doing there. And I just keep going. So it's just one more work in progress in the pile. But sometimes, you know, if I put something in a timeout, I actually will come back to it because I like it and because I feel like it had potential and I'll, I'll come back to it with fresh eyes and that can be really helpful. Like just putting a piece on pause, giving it a few days, coming back to it and seeing like, oh, okay, this was so obvious. Like, why didn't I see that? Oh, well, I see it now. So now I can resolve that, right? Um, sometimes I will show my partner what I'm working on and get his input on it because he's also an artist and I love his feedback, like as a non-quilter. So, you know, he'll approach it strictly from like the design side, right? And he'll be like, oh, I don't know, something about this. It feels too top heavy or like, um, there's too much of this going on in this one spot or, and you know, I love that kind of input and I appreciate that I can talk to him about it because like, you know, quilting is kind of a solitary activity, especially like if you're not part of a guild and I am part of the, the modern quilt guild, but you know, I can never make it to any of the Cambridge modern quilt guild meetings. Cause like for years they had them while I was teaching. <laughs> so I, I'd be there just couldn't like join, you know? So I don't know. Sometimes I think of rejoining, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm kind of a solitary creature anyway. So, um, so I really appreciate having Matt, my partner there and, you know, being able to bounce ideas off of him. Like he'll get home from work and I'm like, come into my studio quick before you do anything else. Tell me what you think of this. Um, there's, you know, how sometimes you'll, you'll be working on a piece and you'll be totally obsessed with it. Like it'll be like, the thing that you're thinking about all day when you're not working on it. So whenever I get especially obsessed with a piece and I reach that kind of stalemate with it, I'll take a photo of it and then uh, put it up on Procreate and sketch over it. So like draw like what I think, how I think I'm going to fill in the blanks or just like make little notes, like move this here, move that there. So that even if I'm not in my studio, I'm kind of working on it. Um, or I'll just sketch it on scrap paper. You know, I'll just like do like a loose sketch of it and resolve those issues like in analog. But um, yeah, I prefer a quick resolution because man, those works in progress, they pile up. So <laughs> I think that the key though is to just be flexible and open to taking a piece in a totally different direction like when i was working on um, a song for my father 
I remember at one point it looked totally different. Like it was not like right now, I feel like it's a really vertical design, but at one point it was just kind of going every which way. And I just remember thinking like, okay, how do I tighten this up? And we had gone on vacation. So I wasn't in my studio for about a week and a half or so. And I just remember like sitting there at the breakfast table with my kids and, you know, they're chattering about something and I'm drawing the pieces that I have. Like I'm taking, like looking at the photographs of the pieces that I have and drawing them together and like just trying to figure it out like that. And I was like, I got it. When I get home, I can't wait. So like I'm going right into the studio and getting this done because like, I, I know I figured it out. It gives you a lot of control, right? Like it's not all just like loosey goosey. You can, you can upload that to procreate and like really fine tune it. So there are all these different options to play around with improv and like digital media and how to like make that happen and kind of plan your improv, which I know like totally, it sounds like it's defeating the the purpose of improv. But again, remember, it's like there are those little moments of magic that do happen. And all you have to do is be flexible as you're working on it so that even if you're working on something and really designing the crap out of it on like Procreate, when you are actually there piecing it and putting it together, there are going to be these little moments where you're going to go, oh, but then what if I did this? Or what if I did that? And you're not going to strictly stick to the plan. It's just kind of a loose plan. So, you know, a lot of what you've been talking about improv is really the mindset and how it kind of fires up your brain and engages you in different ways. For folks who are interested in like, you know, taking, have never done improv and are thinking about diving in, you know, what are your kind of top tricks for, you know, making that mental leap? So my top three tips for getting started with improv I would say number one is that improv doesn't always mean being without a plan. So like we were talking about earlier, if you're apprehensive about just diving in, you can always start with a sketch or a doodle. Um, But a thing to keep in mind is number two, which is that it's really important to be flexible and to think of the process as building out. Don't be afraid to explore and say move in a different direction or completely turn your work like on its head look at it from a different angle and just play don't don't commit too early and that would lead to number three which is trust yourself and trust the process trust your decisions trust uh, your intuition allow yourself to set the parameters and see what happens. Uh, so you also teach workshops and lectures on color theory and the relationships and interactions with colors. Um, so what are the general misconceptions and barriers when it comes to playing around with color in quilting? So people sometimes think that there are hard and fast rules when it comes to using color. When I talk about how color is subjective, and the way we perceive colors depends on how colors interact with each other, people think that I'm being obscure at best or lying to them at worst. 
I always tell people that tone does all the work, color gets all the credit, which is about how tonality is what creates variations in movement within the composition. When we're looking at the color wheel, we're not just looking at colors, complementary colors, triadic, quadratic, all those different combinations. We also need to consider the shades and tints, as well as color temperature. Think of like, when I talk about color temperature, think about like cool reds, warm purples, greens that are warm like lime green versus greens that are cool like teals and peacocks. There's no magic formula. Working with color um, requires you to trust your eye and your intuition. So when you're pulling like fabric for a new project, how do you kind of, how do you approach that? How do you approach to figuring out what's going to work best together? It's a pretty intuitive process. I start picking colors, lay them out next to each other and see what works. See if the colors play well together. I look for a variety in tones. So what I sometimes do is I'll take a photo of the fabrics lined up next to each other and turn it into a black and white or grayscale image just to make sure that there's a range in shades from dark to light because I know that's going to give me some movement. Um, again, you know, there are the, the basic rules of color theory, right? But there's also like just what looks good to your eye, what's appealing to you. Um, I kind of just trust my gut. I know like People don't like to hear that because they want that magic formula, but really just lay things out, take pictures of them. I think that one of the things that I tell my students is always to pick a lot, pick a lot of fabrics, lay them out, and then just deduct, reduce, take away. So you can start out with a lot of colors and then edit that down to a basic palette that you think will work well. And are there certain color combinations that you always come back to? Yes, um, I definitely have certain colors that just appeal very much to me. And no matter what I do to try to get away from them, I keep coming back to them like, uh, the Kona colors, bright pink and celestial blue. Like I'm always using those two, especially in combination with each other. I have a lot of celestial blue. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a, that's a Wendy classic. <laughs> it's like, I have a lot of it in my bin, <laughs> my scrap bin. It is one of my favorites. I feel like I use that the way most people would use a neutral. It, it just goes well with pretty much anything, to be honest. <laughs> but, but I think it's an interesting point about you know, everyone likes something, things are going to appeal differently to different people. And like to have, there is no, there cannot be a magic answer be, because of that. And also because of like light quality, like mm -hmm. things that look great in New England or, you know, New York are going to look very different in like Florida or Texas just because of the light. Mm. But even also when you pair two different colors together, like sometimes it could look quite different when you pair of another color as well. Your eyes can play all sorts of tricks with you, which I have learned before. <laughs> and that's the thing about the relativity of color, right? Like it's so subjective. It all depends on the juxtapositions of the colors, 
like you said, Wendy, there are going to be times when like one color, like say bright pink, let's use that one as an example. Like it's going to read really differently next to celestial blue as it will read next to something like ochre. And um, I think that light is another thing, obviously, like Amanda said, that plays a, a big role in how we read colors. And um, yeah, like it really is subjective and it's, it's hard to give a very specific pin down answer to that. I also think I'm convinced that like fabric, you know, I lay it out. I love your trick of taking a picture and putting it onto black and white, but then when you even sew it together, it can look wildly different than it did just next to each other. And I think yeah. you're, you know, there's, unfortunately that makes the, you know, you have to just try, which I, I think is an answer that annoys me. So I know I'm assuming it annoys other people. <laughs> you have to try, you have to be willing to play around. And I think that we all have to give up the notion of perfection because it really is anathema to creativity. And everyone wants like these like picture perfect Instagram worthy quilts and that's great. But you also have to be like willing to play an experiment and make the fugly quilt. That's not necessarily going to be the one that you want to share on Instagram, but you will learn a ton about like how to use color and how to uh, play with different techniques with that one quilt, you know? So we see that you'll be teaching a couple of improv classes and a lecture on color theory and the relationships. So what other fun things are on the horizon for Soto Sewing? Um, well, I have those classes coming up at QuiltCon and uh, I don't know, like I have been toying with the idea of self-publishing some books, some like booklets on improv. Um, I know like we're we're expected to have handouts for our students at QuiltCon and normally I'm like sure handouts excellent but I think that with improv that's a little tricky because you can't just sum it up in like a sheet there's no pattern for this so I think that the best thing to do is to kind of put together a little booklet and I hope that once I do that after I teach a class I'm able to then um sell the booklet to anyone who wants to buy one. So we'll see how that goes. Um, right now I've actually kind of been really mired in non-quilting stuff. Like I've been kind of consumed with local politics. I have a friend who's running for city council this fall and um, I am heavily involved with this campaign. And so that's kind of what I'm really focused on that and just doing more improv. Um, I do offer classes to local guilds. I don't have anything currently lined up, but um, I've done it in the past and I'm open to it in the future. So, And for those of our listeners who might be interested in your quilt concourses, can you tell us more about them? So I'm teaching traditional takeoffs, which is riffing on traditional blocks and adding a modern twist to it. It's kind of an improv class, but with this foundation to it this um this theme of riffing on the traditional and um then there's going to be storytelling which is again a very uh, fun improv class that's going to be about how to kind of work narratives into your work and um 
yeah, I think that's going to be really exciting. And my lecture on color is going to be juxtapositions, which is all about the relativity of color and how colors interact with each other. I'm going to explore more the temperature of colors because I know like when I talk about that, people are like, oh my God, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I want to get into that really in depth and explain like how certain colors read as different temperatures, even though technically you would think of them as being one temperature. Like when I tell people, you know, oh, it's a cool red. I don't know why people are like really baffled by that. And I'm like, you know, like when you go on to like a makeup counter and they're like, do you have a, uh, a more blue based your skin tone or are you a cool or neutral or warm? Like, I mean, right there, like we're talking about cool reds versus warm reds. I mean, how different is that from a Kona palette <laughs> or any other solid palette for that matter? But, you know. So it is now time to move on to our rapid fire quilty questions. Are you ready, Maritza? I am. Okay, let's, right. let's keep that energy up. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wendy, why don't you take us away? Okay. So what's your favorite time of day to quilt? Uh, late morning, probably around 10 a.m. That's usually when I get into the studio, take a break for lunch, and I come back at like 1 or 2, and by 3, I'm done. So I don't spend that much time in my studio per day and do you wear shoes while sewing no i am barefoot it's brave in massachusetts winters yes <laughs> imagine yes. you're so judgy i am because my feet are always cold <laughs> well also like my studio the floor is not uh insulated so it gets super, super cold. Like the rest of the house has like radiant heat and it's nice and warm. But my studio is like over like in this one part of the house where there's no insulation whatsoever and it's freezing in the winter and it's it, and it's so hot in the summer. So yeah, it, it's like a little, uh, my, my room of extremities, I guess. I don't know. So music, Netflix, podcasts, or the sounds of silence. Silence and sometimes audiobooks and sometimes music. And what do you like teaching more, improv or color theory? I think that they go hand in hand. I always teach them together. Like whenever I teach improv, we go through color theory as well. So, and do you have a favorite traditional book to improv? I've been kind of obsessed with uh, Double Wedding Rings. So, pick one. Improv curves, improv stripes, or improv triangles? All of the above. And is there a quilting technique that you'd like to try? Sometimes I like think about all the things you could do with Trapunto, and I'd like to try that at some point. What is your favorite ruler size? Six and a half by 12. Or no, six by 12. Sorry. This Ulfa. Whatever this Ulfa is, six by 12, this one. What is your favorite part of the quilting process? All of it except for the basting. So that answers the next question of what your least favorite part is. Um, what is one bad quilting habit you wish you give up? Um, I overpress my pieces. Like I press the living daylights out of things so that sometimes <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's flat. And I'm like, yes, and you can see the stitches because I pressed it so much. <laughs> So who is your quilty BFF? Uh, Tara Fawnen. I love her. And who is your quilty crush? Uh, I think 
it changes from day to day. And at the moment, I really, really love Victoria Vanderland's quilts and Jennifer Camden. Like every time I either one of them comes up on my Instagram feed, I'm like, oh, hearts, hearts, hearts. I'm like, oh, my God, she has made the absolutely <laughs> best quilt ever that anyone has ever made. And then like, I'll see another one of hers. And I'm like, oh, my God, no, she did. And so, yeah, I've been bouncing back and forth between the two of them lately. <laughs> Uh, and um, outside of the sewing room, do you have any in other interests or hobbies? Yes. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, I am really involved in local politics. Um, I love reading about politics and sociology. And yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with that. So, And before we wrap today up, we've got just one more question. And that is, who are three accounts you think everyone should be following and why? So I think that everyone should be following Sean Kimber. Um, her work is powerful and meaningful and important. And I just love her messages, her messaging and her vibrancy and just everything about her. Like she's just awesome. And I love her to bits and everyone should be following her. Um, Next one is Kelly Spell. I really love how in-depth she is and how generous she is with um, all this information that she has on like on dyeing techniques, on entering quilts into exhibitions. And like she's really generous with that information. And um, she walks you through the whole process. And she's just like an awesome person. So um, the third one. I don't know. I there's so many amazing uh, bloggers and not bloggers, but like quilters and people doing really cool stuff on Instagram. And I don't know. Someone who I really appreciate uh, is uh, the Quilty Architect. Like I, what his name is Matthew, right? He has such a sense of humor. And I really enjoy like the silly memes that he creates and like the little videos that he stars in where it's like totally relatable quilting dilemmas. Um, but also his designs are really cool and I appreciate his sense of color. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see what else he comes up with. Cause right now, like I feel like he's on the rise. Like he's, he's been working on like more intricate patterns and, just yeah it's just really cool I, I like his work a lot so so on that note we need to wrap today up and we hope that you enjoyed the show if you'd like to contact any of us we can most easily be found on our instagram accounts i'm at broadcloth studio wendy i'm at the dot weekend quilter and maritza i'm at sodasone.com or you can go to our podcast account at quilt.buzz or our website, quiltbuzzpodcast.com for our previous episodes and updates on upcoming guests. If you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you subscribe to the podcast and tell your quilty friends about us too. And if you've wanted to share what you love by writing a review on your podcast provider of choice, it would make our day. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening. Thank you.